2 Corinthians chapter 12. I've entitled my message, Present Day Problems in Light of Paradise. Anybody here have a problem that maybe is in their life? I recognize talking to Christians, Christians don't have problems. I didn't see any hands go up. We don't have problems. I'm speaking sarcastically. Of course we have problems. And uh, we have a final solution. We have the answer. We're going to be redeemed. So chances are you may be struggling with a problem. Paul relates our present-day problems to the fact of paradise, fact of heaven. If you think much about heaven, you should, because it is a motivation for us in this life. As we focus on heaven, as we focus on where we will be someday, it keeps us on track for living for the Lord today. Many of you are familiar with the name Marco Polo, the famous Venetian traveler of the 13th century. Traveled all the way to China, spent quite a bit of time there, brought back all kinds of things, and told tales that Europe just could not believe. As he lay dying, was urged by the attendants to recant, to repent of the stories he had told, to recant and withdraw the stories about China and the Far East, and to admit that they were fabrications of his own imagination. He said, I have not told half of what I've seen. Somewhat like Paul is saying right here in this passage. C.E. McCartney, the preacher, said, Whatever heaven is and wherever it is, this much is certain. We shall never be able to tell not a half nor a hundredth part of what is truly what it is truly like. Now, the Apostle Paul could identify with the problems of being unable to communicate what he experienced in paradise. Paul saw things, he witnessed things, but he couldn't talk about it except in veiled terms. And that's what he does here. So he's talking about present-day problems in light of paradise. Let's talk a little bit about heaven today from this passage of Scripture in light of what Paul experienced. Look at the first six verses. I've kind of divided this up into three sections. Glory, God honored him. It says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. Paul has talked about boasting at least three times in this passage here. Not just the one that we're looking at, but last week's and the week before. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. But I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. These are things that happen, he says. I'm not making this up. As he said earlier, I behold, before God I lie not. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one, I will boast. I won't boast about my other experiences, but I will boast about this. I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmity. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone, I refrain, I don't tell you everything, I only tell you a limited amount. I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. 
So the first thing Paul talks about is glory. And God honored him. God honored Paul unlike any other man by taking him literally to paradise, literally to heaven. First thing I want you to notice is Paul's revelation. Paul's revelation. This is the climax of Paul's defense of his apostleship. He's been doing that throughout the book of 2 Corinthians because they were following the Judaizers, these pseudo-apostles, and Paul had to really come down to their level and authenticate his ministry, which was really authenticating the true gospel. He's coming to the end of this defense of his apostleship, and he's reticent, understandably, to share this deep, personal experience. It was very intimate and personal to him. But the Judaizers had boasted in their credentials and their letters of recommendation, as this Bible, this letter tells us. So Paul was somewhat forced to break, he tells us, a 14-year silence. Maybe we would say a 14-year gag order that was upon him. He says he had had visions and revelations And that's no exaggeration. Let me rehearse a few of them with you. He had visions and revelations. First, he saw Christ when he was converted. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Acts chapter 22, verse 6. He refers back to it. That was on his way to Damascus. And he's struck down. He's blinded. But he saw the Lord. He had a vision of the Lord. And the Lord gives him direction for his future. Second, he had a vision when he was called to Macedonia to bring the gospel to Europe. Remember, the Macedonians were calling him, the Macedonian individual was calling him. God gave him a vision about their need. And that takes place in Acts chapter 16, verse 9. Third, he had a vision to go to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 22, verse 17. He had a vision where God called him to go to the Gentiles and to preach the gospel to them. Fourth, He received numerous visions and encouragements and directions from the Lord. Acts chapter 18 is a different vision from the Lord. Acts chapter 23, verse 11, and Acts chapter 27, verse 3. He all received, one was on the shipwreck incident where the Lord spoke to him and said, not only you are going to survive, but everybody on the ship, if they stay with you, you're going to be washed up on the shore of an island, etc. So God had given Paul multiple visions and multiple revelations. So what he's saying right here in verse 1 of chapter 12 is no exaggeration. Paul had had multiple visions, plus God had showed him what to write in the New Testament epistles that he wrote, a majority of the New Testament epistles. Obviously, Paul had been given great vistas, great vistas of biblical truth, And he understood many of God's mysteries and God's plan for the age to come, what we call the church age, and even beyond that, the age that follows the church age, the tribulation, the great judgment, and the millennial kingdom. God had given him great vistas and vast amounts of biblical truth. That was pretty well secured in his statement. But he was hesitant to share the personal experiences. He was hesitant to share what happened to him when he was caught up to heaven. You know, humble believers, hopefully all of us will struggle with that, but humble believers are not spiritual exhibitionists. 
We don't brag. We don't boast, as Paul says here, about our experiences with the Lord. We may share truth, but we're not spiritual exhibitionists putting on display how God has used us or what we've done for God or any of those kinds of things. Always talking about our spiritual experiences. Beware of someone like that. So glory, God honored him. First, I see Paul's revelation. Second, Paul's translation. That's the very idea, the very words that he uses. He was translated to heaven. He was transferred to heaven. So Paul's translation. Paul uses the third person here. You notice that. That was customary for the rabbis. Instead of saying, I did this, or me, or I, using the first person pronoun, or talking using their name, it was common for them to use the third person. And he tells us 14 years ago, this took place. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's conversion and life, you know that he resisted Christianity, persecuted Christians, And then he was on his way to Damascus to capture some Christians, bring them back, put them on trial, put them to death, etc. But on his way, he is brought to his knees. He has the vision. He's converted to Christ. He goes to Straight Street, gets straightened out. Ananias says, Paul, this is what God has told me to do. You're going to be used by him. So he stays in Damascus. He's discipled a little bit by the believers and begins to preach very boldly. Remember, Paul had a mastery of the Old Testament. Now that he's converted, he sees Christ throughout the Old Testament, and he's able to preach like nobody else because of his command of the Scriptures, and they sought to kill him. So what happens next? The disciples didn't want him to be killed. They led him over the wall. He refers to that in the last verses of the previous chapter in a fish basket, and he escapes. He goes to Jerusalem. And then he's sent, because he preached so boldly there, they send him to Tarsus. And somewhere between Acts chapter 9, verse 30, and Acts chapter 11, verse 25, Paul is caught up to heaven. Paul is taken and he's given these vistas, these revelations, this truth that he will preach and eventually he will write down. He is caught up, translated into heaven somewhere between Acts 9.30 and 11.25. That would be about A.D. 43 from everything that the scholars tell us. And he says what here? He was uncertain if he went bodily into heaven, if he was raptured into heaven. He's uncertain if he went bodily into heaven or if it was a vision, his body remained here. Maybe that's what happened with Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, he's caught up into the temple of heaven and he sees the angel and the tongs at the altar, place a coal on his lips and he's told to go and preach to the Jewish nation. We would assume that that was a vision. So Paul says, I don't know if I was caught up bodily or if it was a vision or what we sometimes call OBEs, out of body experiences. His body remained here and yet his consciousness was there. And he uses the word paradise. Those two words, heaven, paradise, are used interchangeably in the Bible. It says, I was caught up to heaven. I was caught up to paradise. By the way, the word paradise is the Hebrew word describing a walled garden. A garden, small or large, that has a wall around it. It's protected. And it's growing wonderful plants. It's the idea of a well-watered garden. It's the way... The Garden of Eden is referred to. Well-watered, luscious plants, very protected, 
etc. He says, I was caught up to paradise. The third heaven is how the Jews referred to it. Biblically speaking, the first heaven is where the birds fly and the planes fly. That's the first heaven. The second heaven is where the stars are. Vast, but that's considered the second heaven. Biblically speaking, the third heaven is beyond the first and beyond the second to the third heaven where God dwells, where the angels are, beyond the stratosphere, beyond outer space to the third heaven. He says, I was caught up into the third heaven where God dwells. Stop there for just a moment. Nobody gets to the third heaven without God's help. Nobody is caught up to paradise. Nobody goes to glory. Nobody goes to to heaven without the grace of God operating in their life. So we need to stop and do some inventory. If you're here today thinking you're going to heaven because you're in church today, that doesn't cut it. The only thing that gets you to heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ and you appropriating that to your life and to your sin and where you're covered, you're under the atonement, you're forgiven. That's what gets you, as we studied this morning, you're in the registry of heaven. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, Matthew 18 verse 3 says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, childlike faith, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, don't think because you're a good Jew, don't think because you live in the New Testament era that you're going to heaven or you go to church or any of those things. Unless you become converted, he says, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Has that happened in your life? Have you been born again? Have you been converted? Have you been saved, as we say? Paul's revelation, Paul's translation Third, notice Paul's communication. Paul relates this incident that happened 14 years earlier. Moses made it to the mountaintop. We all are familiar with that, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, where he received the Ten Commandments, spoke with God face to face. Moses made it to the mountaintop. Paul made it to paradise. Big difference. Big advantage. And he says he heard unspeakable words, unspeakable words. He doesn't relate those. Divine secrets to be revealed in God's time. Revelation that God wanted man to have, some revelation that God is not ready for man to have. He he heard unspeakable words. It was this vision of heaven that kept Paul going through his travels, through his trials, through his persecution, through his shipwrecks, through his imprisonment that he related in the previous chapter. It was this vision of heaven that kept him going, kept him moving and serving for the Lord. I guess I would say most Christians don't endure much for the Christian cause because they never got or kept a vision of God's glory. That's really what Paul is referring to. He got a glimpse of God's glory. Now, we're not going to be caught up in heaven, and I would be very suspect of someone that says, you know, writes a book or is in a parade magazine article, I died, was gone, went to heaven, came back. I'd be very suspect of that. But Paul did. 
He got a vision of God's glory and he kept them going. The only way that we will get a vision of God's glory, and we do need them in our Christian experience because we have present-day problems, is looking through our present-day problems through the lens of God's Word. We get a glimpse of God's glory by delving into the Word of God, understanding it better, meeting Jesus there is how we get a glimpse of God's glory. You meet people that say, well, I witnessed for the Lord for a while, and then I really got rejected, so I quit witnessing. Or they say, I used to tithe, but then God, you know, put me on hard times, and and so I couldn't afford to tithe. I quit tithing. I quit giving. Or I used to read my Bible, but I got really busy, and, you know, I just didn't have time to spend time in the Word of God anymore, so I quit reading my Bible. You need a glimpse of God's glory. Glimpses of glory in the New Testament are always given to promote holiness and to strengthen the saints' resolve. That's why they're given to us. Glimpses of glory in the New Testament are given to promote holiness and strengthen the saints' resolve, not to satisfy our curiosity. We do have curiosity. It's not a bad thing, but that's not primarily why they're given to us. Paul wanted his converts to judge him not because of what he saw or heard in heaven, but by how he lived on earth. That's what he was saying to the church at Corinth. Judge me by how I live. Yes, he's defending his apostleship, but he wasn't a pseudo-apostle. He wasn't a false apostle. Judge me by how I live. I've made sacrifices for you. We've studied that. This is where the rubber really meets the road, Paul is saying. This is how people will judge us as well. It's not so much, you know, the knowledge of the Scriptures. That's a good thing that we can relate to others, but really how we live is what opens the door for us to be able to talk to people about Christ. So with such privilege, with such blessing, with such wonderful vistas of God's truth and revelation that Paul experienced. What kept Paul from being so proud that God would never be able to use him? Well, now he tells us. The Lord knows how to balance our lives with burdens as well as blessing. So now he relates in the next couple of verses, goodness, God humbled him. Goodness, God humbled him. Verses 7 and 8, he says, And lest I should be exalted and become proud, And get the big head, maybe we would say. And lest I should become exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. He was a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, that it might be gone. So goodness, God humbled him. Let's talk a little bit about this, the problem with afflictions. And probably many of us here have afflictions of some kind. The problem with affliction. The first thing that we always kind of want to gravitate to was what was Paul's thorn? He doesn't tell us specifically. What was Paul's thorn? Was it an eye problem? We would tend to think that. Maybe it was a result of 
the blinding light that he saw, and then he said the scales fell off his eyes when he was with Ananias there in Damascus. Maybe he had terrible cataracts. Maybe he had a disfiguring eye disease. We know he says, look at what large letters I write with my own hand. He usually had a secretary that wrote his letters, but he signed them. I, Paul signed this with my own hand. Maybe it was an eye problem. We don't know. Maybe Paul had epilepsy. We read and studied last week how many shipwrecks and beatings and stoning, and he'd been whipped 235 times with a cat of nine tails. We know he could have suffered some damage. Maybe he had epilepsy, and he'd be speaking and, and have a grandma seizure or something. Maybe it was epilepsy. Maybe it was chronic malaria. He certainly traveled in the world where they had malaria. It was an ongoing problem. Maybe he had tuberculosis where he'd start coughing and just phlegm would come up and there was no treatment for that. Maybe Paul had tuberculosis. We don't know. And it's a good thing we don't know. You've heard that. It's a great thing we don't know because that makes this all the more applicable to us if we have a physical problem. The affliction is left unknown, so it's applicable to all of us. Chances are many people here have asked the Lord for better health or deliverance from a physical problem or a different situation or greater gifts or usefulness or whatever. Probably many of us have done that at some point in our life. We can identify with Paul. By the way, it was a thorn problem, not a sin problem. It was a physical infirmity, not a sin infirmity, we would say. That's pretty clear, that it was something in his body that made his ministry more difficult. It wasn't saying, well, I got a problem over here with sin with my mind or this habit that's a part of my life. That wasn't the issue. Lest anyone think, well, I've got an excuse. I'll just say my sin problem is my thorn in the flesh. That's not true. That's not what the Bible is teaching. A sin problem is not a thorn in the flesh. It is a sin problem. We don't have excuses. By the way, why is there suffering? Paul is talking about how he suffered. Why this affliction? Why is there suffering in our world? Well, first we understand it is a result of Adam's choice, Adam and Eve's choice. Sin, the Bible says, entered the world and it wrecked everything. Even creation, the Bible says, is groaning. It didn't just affect humans. It affected our entire planet, animals, the topography, biology. It affected everything. It's woven warp and woof into our DNA and the DNA of this present world. So, It happened, there is suffering in the world because our world is broken. This is not how creation started out. It's like getting in a car wreck and the car is wrecked. Maybe it can be fixed, maybe it can't be fixed. But creation is broken and someday God will fix it. He'll create it anew. Heaven's a newer because sin tainted both. The angels tainted heaven, mankind tainted earth with sin. First, it's part of the fall. Second, it can be a result of our parents or our personal choices. Remember David sinned with Bathsheba and his innocent child died. 
Over and over we see parents making choices. A mother can be drinking alcohol or doing drugs or meth or whatever it might be, and a child is born with disabilities, child fetal alcohol syndrome or whatever it is. It can be the result of sinful choices of the parent. It can be the result of sinful choices of an individual. You do something that causes you a health problem because you are living in sin. Okay, we get it. So there's afflictions in this world because of the fall, because of the choices of individuals, either ours or others around us. And third, sometimes God allows afflictions to come into our life because it builds our character and brings glory to God. You say, what? Exactly. Remember with Job? Job was not just one of the greatest men on earth, the wealthiest, the Bible tells us, the wealthiest man on earth. But he was a man of godly character and sterling qualities. Matter of fact, he worshiped God unceasingly. And God had blessed him. And Satan said, well, the only reason he worships you is it's a trade-off. He worships you and you bless him and you've made him rich. God says, no, I don't think so. Take away his riches. I bet he'll still worship me. Satan does that. Job still worships the Lord. His character shines through. His devotion to the Lord came through. And the book of Job is a great encouragement to us when we're going through afflictions because it builds character and it shows God's glory. Look with me over here at Romans chapter 5. I'm going to flip back uh, just a book, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we're Saved by grace, we stand in that grace and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're going to someday be glorified. And not only that, not only saving grace, but we also glory in tribulation. What? Paul says we glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, that means (laughs) stick-to-itiveness, endurance, we would say. It produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character, hope. When we go through afflictions and trials, Paul says back here in Romans chapter 5, it produces things in us where we hope for glory, where we learn to endure difficulties. We become better people. God brings afflictions into our life to build character, to reflect the glory of God, to get us fitted for heaven. And he does that with Paul, and guess what? He's going to do that with you, to do with all of us. The problem with afflictions, second, the purpose of afflictions, it polishes our character. It really does. It polishes our character. It buffs us up. Have you ever noticed the rocks with the sharp edges and the rough spots on them are found in the quiet coves because there's no water running against them? The smooth stones are along the river where the water is going over there, right at the beach where the water, the tide's coming in and out and the sand is uh, rolling over it and moving it back out. It polishes it. If God wants to polish you, he puts you on the beachhead where the waves crash And the sand rubs you, the irritations, the afflictions rub you, and he polishes you up like a jewel. And we all know, generally speaking, generally we learn much more in life from pain than we do from pleasure. 
We get contemplative. We search the scriptures. We pray when we go through pain, not when we go through pleasure. And it proves our genuineness. It polishes our character. It proves our genuineness. When people go through afflictions and they quit or they blame God, some people get bitter and they blame God. Others give up and fail the test. Some bravely endure but with no joy and receiving no reward. Are afflictions a disgrace to a Christian? No, they're not. If you know your Bible, you know that afflictions are part and parcel. They're part of what God orders in the process of building us. Paul's accuser said his affliction was a punishment from God, when the truth of the matter is they were a gift from God. They were a gift from God. As part of putting Paul's character on display, the glory of God on display. His friend said, cheer up, Paul, someday you'll get to heaven. Paul says, I've been there and that's why I have this thorn. (laughs) Don't tell me to cheer up, I've been there. That's why I have this thorn in my life. So I wouldn't be boastful and I wouldn't be exalted above measure. Purpose of afflictions, it polishes our character. It proves our genuineness. It promotes prayer. It promotes prayer. That's exactly what Paul did. That's probably what most of us do when we have a sudden affliction, a trial, Paul was uncertain if his thorn was temporary or permanent. So he says he pleaded with God three times. And the idea here, it wasn't three prayers. Oh, God, deliver me. Next week, oh, God, deliver me. These were periods of prayer. We're not told how long they were, but it probably was extended times of fasting and prayer where Paul continually went to the Lord asking for deliverance from this thorn in his flesh. And he probably did the same thing you and I have done. Oh, God, I could serve you better if this wasn't in my life. Three extended periods of prayer asking for deliverance. He didn't know if it was temporary or permanent. If you think about it, you can link together paradise and pain. The blessing of God, the buffeting of Satan. Ecstasy and agony. We see they're often paired together, and one prepares us for the other. Paul went to heaven, but he also learned that heaven could come to him, that God could supply the grace that he needed. And so we come to the third idea, verses 9 and 10. Grace, God helped him. Grace, God helped him in verses 9 and 10, strengthening grace. Had a discussion with Pastor Zach, who is much more of a Greek scholar than I certainly am, but the tense from what I've read in this verse is important from the Greek scholars. They say that verse 9 is saying that Paul is saying, God has once and for all said to me. In other words, it's done, Paul. This is my message to you from the original Once and for all, God said to me, my grace is sufficient. In other words, you're going to live with this. And Paul quit praying about it. Paul accepted it. My uh, once and for all, I've given you my grace, and that's all that you will need. You'll be able to live with this, and it's part of the ministry that I have given to you. 
God gave Paul a message that stayed with him. My grace is sufficient. The words that he heard in heaven were not permitted, but the words on earth that he heard from the Lord are permitted, and that is my grace is sufficient for you. And it's applicable to all of us. My grace is sufficient for you. What an encouragement those words are. I'd rather have those words of encouragement that God's grace is all that I need for my trials and my difficulties until I get to glory than having a little bit more speculation or a little bit more revelation about the specifics of heaven. Grace is God's provision for every need. We get that. Mercy, we, we, I think you understand what mercy is. Mercy is when God withholds from us what we really do deserve. We really do deserve hell, but because of God's mercy, we don't go there if we're saved. That's mercy, withholding what we really do deserve. God's grace gives us what we don't deserve. Forgiveness, heaven, God's blessing. That's what grace is, contrasting terms we often say grace crossed at god's riches at christ's expense and that's true we receive god's riches at the expense of christ's suffering so grace brings us into the christian life but grace sustains us in the christian life that's one of the main messages paul is getting across it is grace that sustains us we don't just say well i got saved I used up my grace. No, we need grace for every day to live out what God wants us to be. Grace. God's grace saves us, but as Paul says, it provides for our ministry as well as our material needs. So let me ask you, have you experienced God's grace in salvation? If not, you ought to do it today. You ought to seek us out. Find out that truth, that message, and apply it to your life. But do you seek God's grace on a regular daily basis? God, I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the strength. Sometimes I don't have the resolve. I need your grace. God wants us to do that. He wants us, like it's a reservoir in the mountains, to open the tap and allow the water that's stored in the reservoir to flow into our life nonstop. The second idea, after strengthening grace, is sustaining grace. That's what it did for Paul. It sustained him. Often, God does for us what he did for Paul, what he did for the three Hebrew children. He didn't keep them from going into the fiery furnace. He delivered them through the fiery furnace because it brought him more glory. And God wants to transform us many times rather than deliver us. Paul prayed three times, give me health, not sickness. Give me deliverance, not weakness. Three extended times of prayer. God gives us grace so the afflictions work with us, not against us. So the affliction that he allowed to come into our life works with us to make us better people, to bring God glory than to work against us. When Paul accepted that, when Paul accepted his affliction as being from God, then God spoke to him. And God used him in greater ways. 
when he did that. He didn't receive an explanation. He received a promise. God didn't pull him aside and say, now let me tell you why I've sent this, this problem into your life, this trial into your life, this affliction. He didn't give him an explanation. He gave him a promise. And we don't live on the explanations in our Christian experience. Yeah, it's good to know certain things, but we live on the promises of God, claiming the promises and making them personal. My grace is sufficient for you. Romans 8.28 is one of those great promises. God can take the bad things that happen to us and use them for his glory. That's what Romans 8.28 says. Unbelievers can rise above difficult circumstances. We've all read those stories. We know those people. But grace enabled Paul not only to accept his affliction, but to glory in it. That's what he says here. Therefore, would I rather glory. I brag is maybe a way you could say it. I tell people about my affliction. I will glory in it. I'm glad that God brought it because this is how he's used me as a result of having this affliction. Paul gloried his in afflictions. And he says, therefore, what does he say? Therefore, I, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses. For when I am weak, then I become strong. And he says up in verse 9, the last phrase, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Interesting turn of a phrase there. Rest comes from the word to spread a tent. So the idea is there that Paul's frail tent, 2 Corinthians 5.1 is how we referred to his body, Paul's frail tent was covered by God's glory. God covered Paul's body with his glory. His glory rested upon Paul because he accepted that, making his humble tent a holy tabernacle, we could say. Let me give you four concluding lessons here from these verses, and we'll finish. Number one, we learn from this passage of Scripture that the spiritual is far more important to the dedicated believer than the physical. The spiritual is more important to the believer than the physical. This body is just a means to an end. Okay? The spiritual is what's really important. That doesn't mean we disregard our body or abuse our body, but the spiritual, what God is teaching us through our body, is far more important than the physical. Number two, God knows how to balance burdens with blessings, suffering with glory. It's kind of like a, a prescription from the pharmacy. Certain elements that can be in the prescription might be toxic if we took them by themselves. But when they're blended into a pharmaceutical uh, compound, they become helpful medication. God compounds the difficulties and the trials in our life so that they can become advantageous for us in our Christian walk. God knows how to balance burdens and blessings. Third. There is something worse than sickness. There is something worse than afflictions and trials. Sin. In the big picture, in the scope of life and eternity, there is something far worse than, than having a handicap. 
and that is sin. We literally could say, we don't say this, but we literally say we are better off being physically frail and right with God than being strong and healthy and being out of God's will. That's really the truth. I mean, none of us want to want to be physically frail or have a major health problem, but it's better to be frail physically and in the will of God than be out of the will of God and be healthy and strong. Fourth, physical afflictions need not be barriers to effective Christian service because sometimes people hide behind those. At a certain point in life, probably everybody's going to have some kind of affliction, some kind of a health issue, some kind of a problem. But physical afflictions need not be a barrier to effective Christian service. Sometimes we let such little things stop us. They become excuses for us. Why we can't serve God. Paul could have done that, but he didn't thank the Lord. God used him in spite of his afflictions. He used him because of his afflictions. Lessons that we should apply to our life. Thank God we're headed for paradise. We're headed for heaven. We're headed for glory. And we don't want to get there too soon because God's got work for us to do. He's got something for us to accomplish here and now, so let's be busy about it. Father, we bow before you. I thank you for this passage of Scripture. It is an encouragement. It is a motivation to see Paul relate something so personal that seeing the Lord motivated him and kept him moving forward for the kingdom. And Lord, we too, we want to have glimpses. We have a completed revelation. We have an Old and New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit who can open our eyes to truth if we will meditate on them. And we want to stay motivated. So help us to see Christ, to dismiss our afflictions and present-day problems and and just keep going for you, serving you, glorifying you. While our heads are bowed, me ask what I've asked earlier in the message. Do you know Christ? Have you experienced his grace? Do you know forgiveness of sins? That you have a right standing before God, imputed righteousness. You're justified. Because if not, today's the day. Now is the opportunity. Seek us out. Allow us to help you settle this most of all important matters before you leave. Christian, let's just keep appropriating the grace of God and applying it to our situation. In Jesus' name, amen.